Good morning. Happy Thursday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and it is perfect. I got one. It, it should be an easy one too. Um, you always say that. You always say that. And then we talk for 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it should be easy. Um, no, so I just wanted to go over um, what should happen in normal tidal breathing and mm -hmm. then how that can change under circumstances where someone's trying to carry a load yep. or someone's trying to increase their oxygen flow in, carbon dioxide flow out. Um, okay, so where do you want to start? <laughs> so let's start with, let's start with normal. Um, we want to go over the entire book of respiratory physiology. <laughs> yeah ideally right um, okay so so when you say what's going on like give me like a frame of reference so we, so we can be targeted in our conversation uh, motions of the bones i guess so uh -huh. okay and, so, and muscle activity like every well, well, I, I i could i could start it off i could start it off i could show you what what i could describe i think so, okay you want to do that yeah i'd be cool with that sternum pump uh, lungs full from the bottom up i like that i like that a lot that's that's okay and and then with the understanding that we're talking about upright standing or or that type of behavior Correct. right okay. or like if someone's sidelined the the lowest portion is going to fill first. there you go um it, this this whole gravity thing works yeah 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 um pump handle has to move this way <clears throat> which is the we'll call that an up pump handle up and pump handle. For, for those of you born in, in the last 25 years um, a pump handle is in reference to an old water pump i suggest you watch uh the movie about helen keller <laughs> that's how she learned how to spell water with with sign language that's the, that was the first word she learned was water oh. you know did you not see this no what kind of an American are you? <laughs> Not a very good one, I guess. <laughs> Even though um, has, she was a communist. Anyway, go ahead. <clears throat> and and uh, bucket handle. Ribs are moving outward and also upward ever so slightly. Okay, so by tradition, there's a division in regards to uh, the pump handle, bucket handle concept. Okay. Um, where the anything that would be associated with the sternum would be associated with a, the bucket handle behavior. And then anything lower than that would be the, I'm sorry, the pump handle would be anything associated with the sternum, the bucket handle would be anything lower than that. That's tradition, that's tradition. I will respectfully disagree with tradition as I usually do. And I will offer you the fact that the bucket handling is probably taking place everywhere. Um, it's just less pronounced because of the constraints of the, the upper part of the thorax. Because okay. the ribs have a direct connection to the sternum. The sternum. Yeah. And yeah. there's less it's, motion. It just creates a constraint that that sort of makes the, the bias a little bit stronger. It's like some from a visual representation. Um you, you're gonna see it a little bit more there. And and then the way they it's it's typically drawn a certain way. Um and they and they certainly don't give enough credit for the DR expansion. Mm. But it is happening, right? And then what they'll say is, oh, it, it depends. Um, they'll they'll make reference to the the change in curvature of the thoracic spine by traditional means. 
right? They'll use they'll use flexion extension as as terms, but the reality is, it's like if you look at the the shape of the thorax at the top, the the segments would tip backwards. At the bottom, the the segments would tip. I'm sorry. At the top, the segment would tip forward. The bottom, the the segments would tip backwards. So, so which one is it? If you're defining it by traditional terms, you see you see why I hate traditional terms because they don't they don't hold. Right, but yeah, but just you know, if you took a balloon inside the, inside the thorax and blew it up, just look at it from that perspective, and then, like I said, we can we can use the the some of the traditional terminology to help us have a conversation. Because like, because the, because the way the thorax fills up depends on, or or is a determining factor as to what type of a relative motion, um, we'll be able to demonstrate. They they say thoracic flexion because the entire portion of, the, of the upper back is they, it's yeah they'll imply like a bigger curve is going to be flexion right yeah yeah but if you looked at it from a segmental standpoint if you take the so if you if, okay look at t2 and then look at t9 okay and take a breath in they're moving in different directions one's tipping forward t2 is tipping forward t9 is tipping backwards to make a bigger curve. Mm -hmm. Can you picture that? Mm -hmm. So so to, to blindly call it one thing doesn't seem fair to me. Yeah, they're moving away from each other. They are. Yeah. Thank you. That that see that that statement right well, but that statement right there means that you have a, you have an understanding about what's actually going on. And, and then they'll use the K word, right? A, a, a true a true oh, increase in thoracic flexion would be a sternum in a down pump handle position, right? Well, you're bend, you have to bend the spine, right? You'd have to bend the spine under that circumstance if you're pulling the sternum down. Because you don't have relative motions there, do you, boss? No. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Yeah. So again, so this is again like that. You start you start to see why I talk funny. Because well, it, it, seriously, yeah, it's no, like, really, I yeah. get I get the I get the whole planar thinking kind of a thing. Like I lived it for a long time, but then it just starts to not like. Okay, so is bending the spine without relative motion is that flexion, or is it the relative segmental motion of one segment moving on another one? that is flexion because they're not the same mm -hmm. right if i compress mm -hmm. two together and i bend it right and i bend it in the same direction that it would have gone when we're talking about a forward bend it's like which one is it you see it's just yeah. still defined now mm -hmm. it's dirty <laughs> we don't like that well I, it it just becomes incoherent and then it creates confusion because people will associate, here you go, here's my concern. People associate relative motion positions and movements with non-relative motion positions and movements and they're not the same. And, and, and therefore the solutions and resolutions are not the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah, anyway. See, I Good told you we're gonna talk for 10 minutes, man. I told you, like this is not easy. <laughs> go ahead. Um. These rib motions and sternum motions, they should happen, I think, simultaneously with some degree of abdominal wall expansion. Okay. 
Yes, but. All right, so think about filling up a glass of water. Is the whole glass full at the same time? No, you fill from the okay. bottom up. And then you made the brilliant comment of the lungs are going to fill from the bottom up. So the abdominal wall expansion precedes, I, I, if someone's sitting upright, the abdominal wall expansion precedes bucket handle and then pump handle should be last. Um, okay, so think about a, it, it's it's wave behavior basically is what I'm getting at, right? It's like, you're going to have this expansion and then there's going to be compression above it. And then that's going to slowly expand and slowly expand and slowly expand. So, so we have, a, we have, we can use a picture, take a skeleton that's breathing and you would see like segmental rib cave, cage motion as they take a breath in. The okay. compression that's happening above where expansion is happening is that but it's compressed relative to the expansion so oh, it's not squeezing okay. it's just compressed relative to the expansion depending on starting conditions so mm. if i start with an exhale position and i take a breath in it's it you have, you have to look at this from a a segmental manner right mm -hmm. um, one of the easiest ways to see this kind of behavior is to lay somebody on their belly and then have them take a breath because you will see the the shape yeah, You'll see their back uh -huh. first. Uh -huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it, and it goes like that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then you have the diaphragm that's that's changing its shape. So it's compressing the abdominal contents. And so the degree to which that occurs will determine how much uh, expansion you would have in the abdomen, right? So you're just um, a big bag of air and water. Right. And if I put more air into the bag, everything moves together. Relatively speaking. That was actually. So I wanted to ask when someone's trying to lift a weight, they're using yep. some degree of like traditionally yep. it'll be called like the Valsalva maneuver. I'm with you. Just I'm totally with you. Breath yep. holding. Yep. Under those circumstances, they're essentially just they're using the air to like almost like another form of connective tissue behavior. It's just something that won't yield so that they can, I guess, I don't know, stay organized or you just, well, okay. So it, it depends on what, what you want to stack weight on. Do you want to stack weight on a, on a mushy bag of water or do you want to stack weight on a, yeah. on a pillar of, of stiffness, right? Mm -hmm. and that's, that's essentially what you're doing. So um, here's, here's what I would suggest you do. Um, Sometime today, you get on Google Scholar or PubMed or whatever your favorite uh, uh, research-based search engine would be, and you want to look at the difference between the respiratory and postural behavior of the diaphragm, and it will answer many of the questions that you have roaming through your head right now. Good morning, happy Monday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. Whew. A very busy Monday coming up. So we're gonna dig straight into today's Q&A. This is with Peter. Um, Peter's question initially started with the setup of an early propulsive foot and what that entails in reference to some, some medial heel pain uh, symptoms. So we drifted into um, what turned into a neurodynamics discussion because we have to take into consideration into consideration some other structural elements 
whenever we, we get some of these diagnoses. So we have the compressive strategy on the, on the medial aspect of the heel. We have to make sure that we eliminate things like medial plantar nerve irritations and such. And so that's where our conversation drifted off um, to give you some ideas about what, what else you may be uh, dealing with in some of these uh, situations. So this is actually a really good question uh, from Peter because it allows us to, to look at things from multiple perspectives. And this is one of the limiting factors in, in many representations because if you don't have the anatomical understanding, then you might look at this as a purely mechanical problem. So now you're talking about plantar fasciitis when you actually have a medial nerve compression or medial plantar nerve compression um, to deal with. So thank you, Peter, for this question. Truly appreciate you being on the uh, Coffee and Coaches conference call. Everybody have an outstanding Monday, and I will see you tomorrow. I wanted to ask about early feet and like big toe can't really come onto the ground. They can't get the big toe to the ground. Yeah, is that a is that an early foot? Uh, well, we it so to to capture the early representation, which is the superimposition of internal rotation, first metatarsal head would have to hit the ground. So how are, are they? They're trying guess... to get in early. They're trying to get in early. So, so here, here's the dealio. So, let me let me see if I can do this visually. So, if I'm stepping at you, mm -hmm. okay. So they're trying to do this. They can't get the first met head down. So they would have to go like that to get the first met head down, right? Mm -hmm. So they would have to toe out. Yep. Because their ER is going to be like so far away from midline. So their early is over here. So they're trying to get the early foot. But they don't have any space there, so they're they're going to go out that way, and so they're going to roll, they're going to roll like that to try to get it down. So they'll have like a they'll, they'll have like the big pinch callus on the on the first med head or the inside of the big toe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you're trying to cue foot contact in that person and yep. you don't do it effectively. I guess, are you, are you going to expect that person to start to have pain on the inside of their heel or the inside of their ankle? Um, they might have like a compressive strategy on the, on the medial ankle under that circumstance. Okay. Yeah. And then depending on, you know, how much compression do you have? You got, you got your medial plantar nerve that's right there. So that can get compressed. It gets, it gets misdiagnosed a lot as uh, like plantar fasciitis yeah right because because again it's kind of like in the general vicinity and then and you know people always talk about like the heel sensitivity and things like that but it turns out to be medial plantar nerve and you can you can create a you know how to do the straight leg bias for that uh that's external rotation of the leg uh dorsiflexion of the foot yeah so so uh you evert evert the rear foot and mm -hmm. then force the flex and then take them into the straight leg race and you can bias the medial plantar nerve to, to clear that. And then you might, just, you might be able to just mobilize it like that. Okay. So if you do like a middle P foot mobe, okay. It's the same thing as the, as the bias. Um, it's the same thing as the bias for the straight leg race. It's in the same position, basically. Are you into nerve glides? Is neurodynamics a dirty word? No. It, it's not, okay. It's not a dirty word, but let's be realistic. I don't think it says as I don't think it says as we would think it is like like the way it appears to be um, on on real humans, right? So um, 
they obviously the nerves move. I mean, I, I'm not denying that part. What I am, what I am uh, having issues with is is what reduces the the movement of the nerve itself. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, like if you if you get uh, uh, Bragg's mobilization of the nervous system, it's a it's a fairly rare book, but I think I think uh, Shacklock has it available. Um, have you done his neurodynamics course? No, I just have his book and I've, I've been trying to use it more frequently and yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Bragg has, has pretty good cadaver evidence of how stuff moves. Right. But in a normal human being, when you have concentric orientation, so there's, there's your compression of space. So the, you always hear the, you always hear the phrase in neurodynamics that nerves like three things. They like movement, blood flow and space. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and so what's the easiest way to take all of those away is <laughs> like, okay, concentric orientation. So when you're doing, when you're doing a neurodynamic test, you do realize that you're doing movement tests, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, so when you feel the tensions associate like, um, and if uh, I, I can't tend to default to like a, like a David Butler-ish kind of a, of a uh, execution of the neurodynamic test. Um, at each at each portion of the neurodynamic test, you're going to feel an element of tension, and and that's what you want to pay attention to, other than symptoms, because what's going to happen is as you change as you change the orientation as you reduce the motor output, that's what makes those tests go negative. It's like you're not feeling you're not feeling nerve you're not feeling nerve tension as you move somebody through space. You're feeling the resistance of the muscle activity and connective tissue behavior. Uh -huh. If you change that, it just melts away, and then they go, "Oh, that's so much better." They go, oh, "Well, of course it is." Yeah, right? you pat yourself on the back, and then you you don't have to bang your head on the steering wheel on the way home. <laughs> Ideally, <laughs> yeah. So there you go. See, your foot question turned into a neurodynamics question. Good morning, happy Friday. I have neural coffee in hand, and it is perfect. All right, digging into a very busy Friday, uh, some housekeeping items. Don't forget, reconsider podcast um, at wherever you listen to your podcast um, should be rolling. So, so uh, check those out. Also up on the YouTube channel, probably have another episode coming out, maybe this weekend. Um, so be looking for that. Um, newsletter went out this morning. So if you're on the newsletter uh, list, then uh, check your email boxes this morning. For those of you on the uh, two-week sprint, this is your rest and recovery weekend. Time to reflect on where you are in your progress. For those of you on the newsletter list, there was a way for you to measure your productivity. Um, so make sure you check that out as well. Okay, digging into today's Q&A. This is with Alex. Alex has a great question. This has to do with, with the foot as we move through uh, propulsion. And so we, we initially looked at the setup and the shape of the foot in regards to where we're gonna see concentric orientation versus eccentric orientation, compression versus expansion. And then as we move through the propulsive uh, cycle, what is this, this foot going to actually look like? And then how is it going to look and behave using IR compensatory strategies? So this is actually kind of a big deal as to how it's represented because a lot of things that get represented as relative motions are not relative motions. And certain things that call, get called certain things are not as they appear to be. So thank you, Alex. This is an outstanding question. 
Uh, remember to go to the YouTube channel and get yourself subscribed so you can get all the videos. And then we will see you next week. So I have a question about essentially how the expansion and compression works at the foot, um, both mm -hmm. to hold us upright and um, through compensations. Uh huh. So I understand largely that <clears throat> expansion and compression pressurizes fluid and that pushes into the ground or away and that holds us up. Um, with the locations of the compression that we tend to see through the foot, I guess like I, I classically think of this as just like there are points of contact and we compress down through those. Um, but then when I see the compression through the foot, I feel like it tends to often be more diffuse. So I'm wondering if like muscle compression like focuses down through the points of contact and that's, that tends to be where you see it set up. Um, and the expansion, Related to that, I feel like the, the midfoot tends to find this expanded representation a lot of the time. And so I'm wondering if that's just, that ends up being where the expansion is because it's not an area in which we can compress into the ground. Um, so I'm just kind of wondering how that whole thing gets set up. Okay. Um, <clears throat> go from early. I'm just doing this for everyone's sake here. Let me see if I can get my foot. I got a dislocated cuneiform there. Hang on a second. Okay. And that so that's an early foot. Okay. So I got I got first met head contact. I got medial heel contact. Cool with that so far. Okay. Where's the generally speaking? We're gonna speak in generalities because. We don't want to get like crazy specific here, but where's the expanded representation right now? Top. Awesome. All right. Bottom back. Yep. Okay. So, so, and you can see like the tibia is, is like this great little sort of cue as to where the pressure is being applied. Fair? Okay. How many ground contacts do I have? Ballpark estimate. Six. Okay. And so actually the 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 met heads and the toes. Okay. Yeah. Put them put them together and then put the heel in there. Yeah. Right. So we got maybe four, maybe three. How many ground contacts do I have? A lot more. One. No, I forgot. Ah, there you go. There's the answer. That is the answer. Okay. So it's it it turns into a singular ground contact. Okay. So the fluid volume fills in all the spaces. So just just take the skeleton. This is why skeletons can't walk. Okay. Because they don't have the capacity to flip-flop the 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 fluid volumes to create the right shapes. I mean, there's other reasons why skeletons can't walk, right? Um, clearly, but but point being is, it's like you have to have the bag of water down there 
right? To create the right shape to make. So when they talk about the accommodated foot, right? I'm not disagreeing with that because what happens is, is the fluid is shifting into the middle propulsive shape, which does create an accommodation to the surface. And then there's that moment of maximal compression where it becomes one piece, one contact. Okay, because I got to push into the ground under those circumstances. Otherwise, you got wobbly ankles, right? If you got um, those people that are accused of ankle instability, do you know what do you know what that means? In terms, I mean, yes, but okay. okay. What representation is ankle instability? Oh, it's excessively er. Yeah, it's just an e it's it's somebody that can't capture the middle propulsive representation, right? So they can't push into the ground, straight down into the ground. So they're trying to push through an ER foot. So what do they do? They're the people that come in. Yeah, I I sprained my right ankle seventeen times since seventh grade, right? So so where is your question along along that line of discussion? So. With regards to say like the the IR compensations you might see through the foot, like when you start twisting and bending. Yep. Yep. Um, yep. Okay. In order, in okay. order for that to happen, yep. because obviously like you don't always get that distributed IR, everything touching the ground at once. So right. In order for those compensations to happen, does it need to be able to make contact with the ground in order to apply force and twist? Or can you get those IR twist compensations while remaining away from the ground? Okay. This is actually a great question. I want you to answer it. Okay, think think hang on. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna lead you. Don't don't worry. I'm gonna lead you. Okay. If I have to use an IR compensation to push into the ground, what does that tell you about the foot? you that it can't get IR relative motion. Okay, so so I so right away I know I don't have I don't have the normal middle propulsive IR representation of the foot to push into the ground with. Okay. All right. So if I start from the ER representation, okay, can I have an ER representation that has very little relative motion in it? Sure. Of course I can. That's a late foot. Okay. So let's take a lady yard foot. All right. Um, we could use Ian's question as a little bit of a representation here. So you remember the spine that we were talking about? And it didn't have relative motion in it, did it? Mm -hmm. okay. And then if I wanted to push on the, the peak of the house on their back, would I be, would, would I be pushing into um, relative motion? No. Absolutely not. Okay. So now I'm going to take this late representation of a foot. I'm going to distribute the load in front of the ankle so I can still create one point of contact in that foot. Right? Because I, I have to, it has to move into a single point of contact in it for me to push into the ground effectively. Because if I'm pushing through distributed points of contact, I am uneven and, and very unstable. Okay. So now take the ER foot and get enough weight in front of the ankle through shifting the center of gravity and bend the foot into a position that creates one point of contact. That is your IR, that's your IR compensation. 
Are you saying that would focus it more toward the metatarsal heads? Generally, is that what depends you mean? on how far forward the center of gravity is. So it could focus it like at the anterior calcaneus if it's less far. Well, if I if I do that, what what is going to be the resultant behavior? What's going to happen? That would bend the bone. Okay, because it's because we're not talking about relative motions here. What we're talking about is compensatory IR strategies. A compensatory IR strategy is not going to be relative motion, right? Right. It's going to be bending stuff. So where do you want the bend? Do you want the bend in the rear foot? Do you want the bend in the midfoot? Or do you want the bend in the uh, the first metatarsophalangeal joint? So, so in order to do that, though, it needs to be the part of the foot that is in the ground, finding, attempting to find middle propulsion. Yes. On that ER. Your goal, your goal is to, you will produce IR. If you're pushing into the ground, walking across the ground, you will produce IR. How then becomes the question mark? Are you going to do it with ER structures? If you're doing it with ER structures, you got to bend stuff. Right? So, so are there are there portions of the foot that don't really ever get IR? Like I'm thinking of the midfoot, for example. It's not. It's uh, under under normal relative motion circumstances. Uh, under these compensatory circumstances. Well, I mean both. It's not. It's. I mean, the, the IR is the IR is the downward force. Okay. The resultant behavior is going to be. In this circumstance, non-relative motion, which means you got to bend stuff, you got to bend tissues. Good morning, happy Tuesday. I have neural coffee in hand, and it is perfect. All right, a very busy Tuesday coming up as usual. A uh, little bit of a housekeeping item: uh, the Reconsider podcast with yours truly and my buddy Chris Wykus. Um, is rolling. We're getting a lot of downloads um, where you will find it wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also go to the YouTube channel and actually see the, the video uh, component added in there if you are so inclined. So please go to the YouTube channel, subscribe there so you can get first notifications as to when the next episode uh, comes up. We're having a great time with that and we're getting some really good feedback. So this is going to continue for a while. So again, reconsider podcast. Don't forget to uh, add that to your list of things to listen to. Digging into today's Q&A, uh, this is with Zach. So if you're following the Coffee and Coaches conference calls as, as you do, you know that Zach was working with, with a, a female athlete uh, with some shin splint issues, some compartment syndrome issues, and things are going actually pretty well for him. So uh, when you remove gravity, she's doing really, really well. We add gravity back in, she's having some issues. And so what we discussed in this in this element is how to progress someone up through these situations. Um, when we think about how we have to push against gravity, we have to be able to acquire a position of the pelvis that is biased towards internal rotation. So this is the compressive capabilities here so we can actually drive force downward into the ground. So this is IR going from proximal to distal. And if you can't do that, then you're gonna to collapse towards the ground. And it appears that that's what, that's what she's doing. And this would account for a number of her symptoms as well. So again, we talk through some progression, how we can progressively load that outlet so she can actually overcome gravity more effectively. So Zach, thanks for bringing this case uh, to the call and asking the right question. Everybody have an outstanding Tuesday, and I will see you tomorrow.
Um, so I'm going to follow up on the girl that Ian followed up on that I asked about the shin splints term compartment syndrome. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, just quick side note, you were correct. She did have an ER foot in non-weight bearing. Um, so like usual. <laughs> um, but anyway, so she she's done really well on the table so far. Like again, like just kind of like one of those like tall, very slender girls that just got her motion back like very easily. Um, just kind of flopping over the table with very minimal input. Um, so once we had like an early representation last visit, I stood her up and then did the activity. So it was like one foot on a box, one foot straight underneath her, chopping down, um, just to try to like basically like reteach underneath her and like build out a little bit of like middle. Her immediate strategy was very similar to just like her initial standing posture where like she hyperextended the knee and then like rests on the front of her hips. Yep. So I guess my question is just, I just want to make sure like I'm thinking about this like passive strategy correctly and like just trying to like relate it back to her symptoms. Is this just another manifestation of the idea that like she has no proximal to distal like force production strategy? And like she actually can't propagate the wave. So like, that okay, so so chances are she's not even accepting it very well at all, right? Like like it's like she she um, she doesn't have store energy storage and release, right? So she's got to capture it first, right? So she doesn't have anything to use. So how do you push down into the ground? Well, you set up your center of gravity so that passively it goes down into the ground to hold you up right so that that almost just sets her up to like for that anterior orientation just like kind of let her body weight fall forward it, like yeah so so it's like like so you know i so as i step forward the spring has to compress as i come over top of it it's fully compressed and as i leave it it expands again right okay so she's steps forward but she's already here she's already in this compressed state right so how do you, how do i get more force down into the ground so i can at least hold myself up yeah it's pure orientation right so so you still have some um elongating to do so she needs to get it just a little bit taller so when you say i have more elongating to do is that more elongating to do in like non-weight bearing because she's defaulting to that or can i cue like because like if, I, if if hang on if you can get her upright in a reduced gravity situation you might have a shot wall supported wall supported suspension cables like whatever it is but but you but you gotta you gotta be thinking like an early representation because i don't think she has the capacity to ab absorb energy Right. Because because what think about think about why she would have the symptoms. It's like like the symptoms are her attempting to compress more in a compressed state. So you got to start from the, the expanded representation. She just doesn't have. Do you have a pool? No. Yeah. Does she have a pool? Uh, I would imagine at school she does have access to that. Um. You may, want to, you may want to do some do some uh some drills in the water in, ter in terms of what like what do you like what, do you what what would you do on the ground my friend it's just, it's just anything that we would do like if, like if if you were teaching her to go through middle p 
on the ground, right? Mm -hmm. So what would be, what would middle P look like on the ground? You're warming her up for, for sprints and accelerations today. What, what would, what drills would you give her for middle P? Uh, first of all, it was just bottom of a split squat. Okay. And then what? Then what do you need? Uh, that's your early, that, that's going to be an early IR representation on the lead leg. So that's good. Okay. Then what? I need, I need that same shape that I was going after with that activity. So like probably like some sort of like, like if I'm more of it with your question, like acceleration sprint day, like getting into like mock drills. There you go. That's what I wanted you to say, actually. Yeah, think about this. So you put her in the water, okay? So she's as she goes into the, the foot contact, she's going to compress. And as she comes out of that foot contact, she's got to re-expand. Teach her how to re-expand herself in an anti- like or reduced gravity situation, right? All right, so I... I just jumped, even though I got the early representation on the table, I just jumped into a middle activity too quick and way She there. did. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. She did. Oh, it's my fault. Well, but what, what here's what I'm saying, Zach, is that you need a transition. You need a transition um, between the table and where you where you recognize the compensatory strategy. Right? Like she doesn't have a strategy in the middle there. It's like take gravity away. She looks good, right? So we got to take more gravity away before you before you even give her like a cable activity with her feet on the ground. It's like that's still too much. Right. Okay, yeah. A couple other things to consider. Did you invert her? I did. Huh? I did. You did. Awesome. All right, so the inversion is to get the, the get get the concentric orientation of the outlet, so she can push herself back up, right? So she compresses down; she's got to be able to push herself back up. That's 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 like that's in her, that's in her home program at this point, just as so she gets a lot of exposures to it. Awesome. So again, start thinking about transitional uh, positions between the so inverted takes as much weight away from the outlet as possible right so so she can drive a concentrically oriented outlet in that position because there's nothing pushing down on it so she can push it up so you need to start to transition her right progressively to bring her to upright because upright clearly is too much okay but see, that's the advantage of the, of the water. That's the advantage of cables. That's the advantage of bands and things like that, or reclined positions, right? You see where I'm going? Yeah. So she might go like these like reclined positions that we're talking about into like a chop where it's like more like a back stagger, and then and then into that activity that I just described, like that. That's quite, probably quite possibly. So so here's the advantage. Here's the advantage of the staggered stance stuff and and chopping activities is that she can't. She can't drive the the femur into uh, IR relative to the tibia, right? Her knees are going to be bent. Yeah, well, I also feel like it's you can still anterior orient the pelvis, but like I'm, it's not as over the top if she's coming sitting back into a little oh, bit. Okay, there you go. Because her center her center of gravity is going to going to be able to stay back, so so she's less likely to go into the orientation. You see it? Yeah. Yeah. So you know. Um, the, like stuff like a uh, like any kind of like a like a suspended squat, a Patrick squat where she, her back's against the wall, 
the the recline supported stuff that you were talking about before is all on the table like the, on the table when i say on the table not on the table but you you know it's it's there to be selected all right that's really helpful okay. yeah but 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 I think I you know from a from a transitioning standpoint, um, if she if she has access to water, you might be able to accelerate the process because again she'll be able to she'll be able to start pushing up vertically, but in a gravity reduced scenario. Yeah, I, I'm definitely not going to get to that with her because I've only got one more visit before she gets the left side done. Um, but then when she's back at school, um, I can kind of just talk to her like before they have her start running. Um, at least getting into the pool and practicing some of that stuff, which should be like definitely have pool on a yeah. All of her, all of her, all of her running drills, all of her jumping drills, all of that stuff can be done, you know, in in the anti gravity. Gotcha.